0: This is episode number 437 with Dr. Claudia Perlich, Senior Data Scientist at 2 Sigma. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is John Crone, a chief data scientist and best-selling author on deep learning. Each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today. And now let's make the complex simple. Welcome to this episode of the Super Data Science Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. John Krohn, and it is my great pleasure to be joined today by the incredible Claudia Perlich. A coveted international speaker and many-time data science competition world champion, Dr. Pelich is a senior data scientist at Two Sigma, one of the planet's largest hedge funds, a feat achieved in no small part thanks to the fund's focus on quantitative, machine learning-driven trading strategies. In this episode, Claudia fills us in on how investment managers, including hedge funds, leverage statistical models and machine learning. What the workday of a data scientist is like at one of the world's most successful hedge funds as well as what software tools they use. The one major feature she's looking for in the data scientists she hires, her tips for winning data science competitions like Kaggle, and her one simple trick to have an extraordinary career in any field. This episode is particularly well-suited to data professionals who are, or might like to, apply their skills in the financial industry. That said, Claudia has thoughtful tips for data scientists at any stage of their career, regardless of industry. There's also a fair bit of content that would be of interest to managers or business people who aren't hands-on with code, but are keen to learn about how valuable data science is in financial applications. This is such a great episode. Let's get right to it. All right, Claudia. Welcome to the program. How are you doing? How has COVID been for you? How's the lockdown been in 2020?
1: First off, thank you so much for having me. It's a great opportunity to uh, talk to you. Um, On the COVID, I think that's actually the thing. You don't accidentally run into friends that you know in Mm Bryant Park and have a drink with. So,
0: Ah, um, (laughs) that sounds like a familiar story.
1: So I have found that my kind of loose social life got a little bit uh, more distant in the process. Um, from a work perspective, I'm saving currently three hours a day that I'm no longer sitting in trains commuting. And yeah. I have felt that if at all, it might have improved my um, productivity and even given me a chance to get into more technical work that I never really had the time in between meetings and the usual bustle of the office. So at the end, the fact that I'm living out in Westchester, very near to uh, where I initially worked um, here near Watson IBM, it's -hmm. a beautiful area. You can go out there. um, You can go for hikes. It's all just in front of the door. And so I have not found the lockdown to be personally limiting with regarding to all of the things I love to do in my spare time. On the contrary, as I said, I have more time to do these things. So... um, I have to be grateful for the fact that everybody stayed healthy in my uh, group of friends and family, um, and I'm very well aware that I've been very lucky about this. Um, so I, I think it will have some lasting changes on my life, even if we go back to business as usual, as it yeah. may have been. Um, I have found more new interests and hobbies, so I've been well, and I've been very grateful for that.
0: Nice. That's great. And I totally understand everything you're saying. Um, I've also had the experience of being able to uh, avoid that commute time and be able to dig more deeply uh, into some books and that kind of thing, uh, creating educational materials in my case. And um, yeah, and definitely, I I would say in terms of execution, um, my productivity is higher. And I think my team's as well. And studies seem to show that that's happened under lockdown. For people that can work remotely, um, however, I, I've also found I found that the R and D has suffered a bit because we used to gather around a whiteboard with notebooks, no computers, yeah. and yeah. So this is something I'm looking forward to having a bit in 2021. Now, being able to get back and and get around a whiteboard with people,
1: and I think it's also really challenging for people who are new and joining these teams virtually. I think we can rely on our existing contacts. I know, oh, that's a great thing that I should be asking Hannah, and she's happy to just jump on a whatever Slack, Zoom, you call it. But if you haven't Quite yet gotten the lay of the land, and you don't know who's the right person to ask what. I think these things are much harder to establish from scratch if you're just joining. So I feel for new hires that are struggling with finding their place in organizations with the current remote uh, work scenario.
0: Nice. So we have alluded to uh, where you live and work and what you do. So um, you know you mentioning Westchester, so so. Uh, For people who aren't aware, people are listening from all over the world. So uh, Claudia lives near New York and works in New York City. Um, And I've known her for many years, getting six, seven years now, actually, we've known each other and mentioning, for example, running into each other in Bryant Park, which is a popular park in the middle of Manhattan that has uh, some nice outdoor bars around it that are beautiful in the summer. (laughs) And... um, and yeah, so we met at a conference, a um, a, a data science uh, panel. Uh, no, it was a, a data in advertising panel that you and I were both on yeah. many years ago. Um, and uh, and yeah, and I you mentioned the IBM TJ Watson Center that you used to work at. And I went up and I spoke at um, at that conference center. Thank you for inviting me up there. And it is a beautiful campus. But the best part of going up and speaking at the IBM TJ Watson Center in upstate New York by Claudia's place was that I got to see her with her gigantic horse, which, if I remember correctly, <laughs> is named Monkey. Um, well,
1: to be formal, his name is officially Moon Country, and he is, I think, a grandson of Secretariat. Oh. This notwithstanding, he's terrible at running fast, um, <laughs> but he has the attitude, so... Um, yeah, I've, I've always been absolutely fascinated by horses. It's a childhood uh, obsession that goes back to when I was 12. Um, and, of course, when you then study and you kind of get your life and your career going, I didn't have much time. But once I had a job and and a child, I said, you know what? There has to be more to life. I need to go back to my roots. So um, I, I picked up that hobby and uh, I found Monkey locally here. Um, I retired him actually this uh, spring. He kind of got to the time where it felt it would be just fair to him to walk around right. on the green grass, hang out with his buddies and don't worry about me trying to make him run somewhere. Um, huh. But but yeah, so um, I'm still using hobbies like that as a way to just free my mind because when you're sitting on a half ton horse, you don't really get to think. I mean, there's just not much... There's just a presence there that makes you live in the moment, and I find that a great balance to the more cerebral activities that I spend the rest of my day on.
0: Nice. So we'll talk about your work, the amazing data science that you do momentarily, but first, I think it's really important for everyone to know about the kind of writing that you've done since you were 12 years old. Because it is, I didn't, I wasn't even aware that this existed. Uh, Tell us about your hobby.
1: So... Okay, you said I should keep it light on the background, but um, since you're asking...
0: (laughs) It's my fault, it's my fault.
1: (laughs) I grew up in uh, East Germany, and the thing about East Germany is that um, you couldn't just take horseback riding lessons for money. That didn't exist. The only way you could get anywhere near a horse is if you joined a sport that was considered an appropriate sport. Now, for a 12-year-old, the only option regarding sport with horses was something that... Germans call Voltigieren, which in America is known as vaulting. Mm -hmm. Um, And it basically means the horse is running in a circle, um, and it doesn't wear a saddle. It just has a a girth with two um, handles. And then you do basically gymnastics on the running horse. So you have to actually jump on the horse, and then you're standing on the horse, or you have... second person join you, and then you're sitting on the horse, and the person is sitting on you. Um, And that was the only way you could get anywhere near a horse. So um, I said, okay, that's what it takes. Sure, I'll go and stand on running horses. Um, So that was my beginning, and um, I competed a little bit in that, and it was a fun time. The one thing I have to say is great about it, you get really good at falling off. So Mm -hmm. you learn how to... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Make an exit without hurting yourself too much. And that has come in handy quite often uh, since I've uh, joined the more proper riding side of the world.
0: Nice. Do you do do you do any kinds of tricks anymore? Uh, I guess maybe now, not that, not that monkeys retired. You don't want to put them through that. But
1: well, the truth like, is, you need a very well educated horse to do that. Ah, Most horses would not tolerate you running up to them and trying to jump on. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of a <laughs> death wish right there. So I don't recommend just trying to do that with any horse. Um, So no, that has been um, the side burner. I have a friend who still runs a team in Germany. Sometimes I go there and I kind of fresh up on some of these uh, fun stuff, but um, yeah, nothing active at this point.
0: Well, very cool. You may already have heard of Data Science Go, which is the conference run in California by Super Data Science. And you may also have heard of Data Science Go Virtual, the online conference we run several times per year. In order to help the super data science community stay connected throughout the year from wherever you happen to be on this wacky giant rock called planet Earth, we've now started running these virtual events every single month. You can find them at datasciencego.com connect. They're absolutely free. You can sign up at any time. And then once a month, we run an event where you will get to hear from a speaker engage in a panel discussion, or an industry expert Q&A session. And critically, there are also speed networking sessions where you can meet like-minded data scientists from around the globe. This is a great way to stay up to date with industry trends, hear the latest from amazing speakers, meet peers, exchange details, and stay in touch with the community. So once again, these events run monthly. You can sign up at datasciencego.com slash connect I'd love to connect with you there. So now I'll finally let you tell us. Uh, so what do you do? Uh, so tell us about uh, where you work and um, and what you do there.
1: So I have um, joined uh, a financial technology company called Two Sigma.
0: Yeah, it's the one of um, the biggest at, and most uh, successful hedge funds in the world. <laughs>
1: I I'm very grateful and uh, appreciative of not just the success. The, the truth is I, I try to avoid finance for as long as possible, which actually isn't easy if you're doing data science in New York right. City. Um, but uh, I started meeting folks there as we were talking about data in when I was still in my previous role as a chief scientist, an advertising company, and I was really um, impressed by the sense of a, they call themselves the nice geeks. And I think that's pretty appropriate. Um, So I didn't join them for the success as much the fact that um, they're really incredible people. And it's a very nice uh, working environment where you feel that you're trying very hard to find a balance between intellectual property and the competitiveness. After all, we are building financial uh, products Mm -hmm. um, and it some amount of secrecy and protection of ideas. Um, and on the other hand, um, as you say, the, the absolutely invaluable brainstorming session on a whiteboard where really good ideas are only born as you're working with people who think differently. And so um, I joined to Sigma. And uh, over the first year, uh, we decided uh, to build a team that's called Strategic Data Science.
0: Mm, cool, I didn't know this.
1: Now, the truth is, I would say more than half of all folks working at Two Sigma are data scientists. That's what they do. They may not call themselves that, right. but um, kind of the naming issues around data science uh, aside. So this team um, has a pretty broad mandate, and it was maybe somewhat um, motivated by um, the the breadth of experience and interest that I and uh, Drew Conway have. So Drew joined um, about a year later, and many of you may have heard about him as well. Um, And that team is still uh, fairly small. Think of it as a little bit of an R&D incubator uh, within the um, kind of primary focus of the company where we have some freedom to explore some more... um, higher hanging fruits on the tree that might take more time uh, than more of the uh, kind of direct pathways into kind of the financial um, industry and data types. So we work with more out there data sets. Um, we are also collaborating with um, a number of affiliates. So Two Sigma isn't only uh, They're working in in trading in the financial markets, but they also have a venture group and they have a team that is interested in private investing. So um, there is a constant um, exploration of what are some adjacent areas uh, of growth where um, the primary competence around data and modeling could be brought to bear. So we are working with some of those teams. What's really fun about it is, They themselves then have um, venture companies that may need the occasional data science um, advice. So you get to work on a number of different uh, projects there. Um, So that's part of the mandate is also to support these affiliates and and help them understand what the best way forward is and how some of the resources that we have can be brought to bear. So that is the, um, the second piece of the mandate. And the third is... Things like talking to you, um, doing um, some public-facing activities. We're going to conferences. And the understanding is that um, on some level, it's it's giving back to the community. It also obviously helps um, reaching talent that may otherwise not have considered um, exploring uh, financial industry as such, and just good citizenship. And a very interesting area on that is, I'm not sure if you know about Data Clinic. No. It is a small team within Two Sigma that the model is similar to what DataKind does. So they are partnering um, with nonprofit organizations and then explore um, opportunities where some of the um, employees at Two Sigma are volunteering their time, whether this is engineering time or data science time to build solutions and systems based on data for nonprofits. But uh, the team's also doing some great work uh, with open data. They are participating in the New York uh, open data conferences on a regular basis. So uh, that has been another area that I've been really excited about and participated as much as I can.
0: Sounds opinion. like some pretty nice geeks. Yeah. Very nice. And um, you mentioned Drew Conway. That also reminded me of another kind of celebrity data scientist alongside yourself and Drew, um, that I believe was until recently at Two Sigma, Wes McKinney. Um, And so he is, for people who aren't aware of him, you've almost certainly used uh, his software because he is, if, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but if I'm remembering correctly, the the founder and primary contributor behind the Pandas library. Uh, Absolutely. So,
1: he actually interviewed me um at 2Sigma when when I was being interviewed to join 2Sigma um, he left maybe a year ago and um I think he wanted to uh focus uh, even more so on um the open source development and extension of uh, of his software and um but he has been closely partnering, so yeah. we are still working with him and we're using uh, a lot of his developments and even have like direct collaboration to the extent that we're looking for extensions that uh, seem to be useful
0: to and us. And I think I read, I think this is public information, uh, I'm pretty sure I read online that uh, Two Sigma is an investor in his company that he started yeah. since leaving. Yeah, so definitely... Some-
1: that, that goes back to one of these kind of affiliate, mm-hmm. like the, the venture business, that are really... Um, Given the understanding we have about where technology stands in data science and what some of the kind of missing pieces might be, there is a a very deliberate effort to identify those companies that could help building out these pieces. So I think it very well aligns with our strategy, despite the fact that we like Weston and that we are very happy to support him in his uh, future endeavors.
0: Yeah, and I can speak to the uh, the venture side of Two Sigma being um, unusual in a really good way. In that, so uh, Two Sigma has been um, a client of my company for many years now, and um, and at one point we came in and 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 talked to your venture arm, um, so or you know we were invited to come in uh, based on what we were doing and had some further conversations, and it was amazing to me the. The level of interest in the models we were building and you know we were talking about whiteboards, literally getting up at a whiteboard in a boardroom, talking through our modeling approaches and getting feedback and guidance from venture capitalists, which i that's I've never had that experience before. It was like going into um, a classroom and not a venture capital office
1: i'm I'm very happy that that you experienced that and that you're sharing this. Um, And again, from the other side, uh, it's something that I've always enjoyed doing a lot. So I've always worked on these um, projects, whether they are mentorship with um, companies or even students. Um, And I think that opportunity really kind of reflects um, the just excitement about good technology. Um, So um,
0: thanks for sharing. Yeah, an honor. Um, So of course working in finance um a huge amount of of what you do can't be made public on a podcast like this but um i'd love to know you know maybe digging into a little bit more uh, for the audience what your um what your role is like on a daily basis so you've talked about you know these these three different streams of work but i don't know if you were to pick so like you know this afternoon after uh so we're recording this podcast in the morning Uh, So in the afternoon today, you know, what's your day going to be like or what is a typical day like?
1: Also, today happens to be a day off because I can only take 15 vacation days over to the next year. Mm. So, but if it were a regular (laughs) day, um, so I think it it might make sense to put for those folks who have not as much experience with kind of the financial investment uh, process, a little bit of a structure around that. And, And the way I like to think about it is. There's typically at the very front end where you have ideas about hypotheses um, from a really scientific perspective of what makes things work well, like what makes things grow, what could be have a positive impact and uh, success. And so you, you think about actually really fundamental economics. What are the drivers? Are you... It's a company showing that they're hiring the that they're successful as hiring talent. So you're looking at any form of either causes of symptoms that you feel from an economic perspective should have a positive or negative impact on a company. So that's kind of in the very front end that people talk about alpha ideas in the um, hypothesis space related to success. So we're not talking about modeling returns yet. We're just talking about understanding, scientific understanding of how the economic world works. And then starting with that, um, you come up with a number of ways to characterizing entities and companies and all of that. And these are the initial level of signals. There are many different teams at Two Sigma that are thinking about this, and they focus on very different components. They have different specialties. What happens then is it goes into the next stage. So when all of these signals come together and they have been validated and tested and all of that, um, there is an optimization uh, stage where as a company, we need to figure out, well, how much exposure do we want to the Asian market? It might be that they all say it's great, but how much exposure do we want to take? Right? So there are now these trade-offs depending on the the mandate of a given fund. Um, And so in that optimization piece, you're now restructuring the signals into a goal portfolio. Like you, At that point, you decide, where do you want to be? And this happens in very different timescales. Some of them are much shorter terms. Others are much more longer term. But there is this optimization stage that then says, here's where I want to be. And then the last piece is um, the execution, which shouldn't be overlooked because there are many different ways how you can buy a certain amount of shares in a certain company. Mm -hmm. And if you're operating at the scale of two Mm -hmm. sigma, you know that A, people are watching what you're doing, and B, that you have market impact. So now the strategy of how do I get to that place from where I am. And in all of these components, there are different flavors of data science with different types of algorithms being used. Some are more in the machine learning region. Some are more in the optimization space. Some may more in a kind of reinforcement space. So um, there is really applicability for data science across that whole board. And my team has primarily worked on the very early beginning of understanding what kind of signals is, could be um giving us some insight into how the economy works and what makes companies successful. And that piece is also the piece that then is very much applicable to private companies and to startups. So that's really where the symbiotic piece of why my team is doing all these supposedly different things works, because the fundamental economic drivers um, really should be the same. And you can often learn something about public companies by understanding
0: private ones and vice versa. Nice. That was such a beautiful explanation. I I was like completely entranced that whole time. Uh, I I loved I and I I worked for a couple of years after my PhD in trading, and um, I don't think I could have possibly explained you know what it's like um, it, anywhere near the level that you just did. So uh, that was absolutely wonderful. Thank you.
1: Well, I I do realize that it not at all answer your question about what I would be doing on a regular Dating. day. So I can still answer that question. Oh, yeah, Go
0: please. Uh,
1: so um, in the in the role that I currently have, it's a very small team, and I, I've been trying to resist management uh, responsibilities for a while, but I absolutely love um, the team that I have right now. Um, and given the current size of three folks, um, I feel that the – increase in productivity that that I get from working with a team um, absolutely outweighs um, the kind of managerial uh, components of it. And it it feels uh, like a really step forward in, in my career. So part of my day is I'm connecting to my folks. We have a little stand up. We used to do it daily, but we've come to learn that we know so much about what everybody's doing anyway. Um, and we have now put it into twice a week. I think when we're on the office, it's kind of more natural to just grab each other over a coffee right. and then talk about what we're doing. Um, it felt a bit um, artificial, so we have scaled it to um, twice a week. Um, and then typically, um, I'm picking up whatever I'm most excited on on working on. It could be a little component of a piece of work that one of my team uh, members is really focused on, and it could be something mm-hmm. like. Well, our entity matching of company names um, is still only at 95%. Let me try to figure out if why not throw it into some kind of embedding or distance learning thing and see if that works. So I'm picking up almost the most R&D things that often don't work, but occasionally they do. So if I get to devote like two three hours of my day, I might pick up some embedding and do some things that is really useful to one of my team members. Um, I might have a meeting where we're going over a, a model and understand, well, does it really, should it predict a lot better than it does? So there are kind of the technical sides um, to it. Um, and other than that, we have a number of um, kind of ad hoc inside things. So we've been writing this newsletter on COVID observations. Oh.
0: Um,
1: and it's really fascinating how, um, you can um, look at both public data sources. So part of my day is scouring for relevant other new data sources, whether this is public data or vendors that I hear about um, that could be of interest. And then kind of thinking about, well, how can, can we share this? Actually, not for a direct financial model, but understanding maybe just the risk landscape of how COVID is changing the economy. And maybe there are some markets where we don't know where it's going, but maybe we just don't want to be in that risk space at the time. So I've been tracking, for instance, how globally the movement of goods has changed under COVID uh, and how different economies, kind of there's a staggered effect that it has on different economies. And that also means that there's a bit of a shift in the uh, market share, because a few are there at the right time when somebody has a lot of demand and some previous very big supplier is out of commission. So they're interesting dynamic observations. And even if we can't really predict where this will be in a month or two, it might still be interesting to observe these in terms of the scientific understanding of the economy.
0: When you say newsletter, that's a public newsletter? Um,
1: That is uh, only public to the two Sigma. In that. So no, it's not going <laughs> well. I see, I see, I see. But for an company to send an email with insights to everybody in the company, that is uh, quite spectacular right, right, right. Uh, in terms of a amount of sharing uh, that's going on there. So yes, it's not quite a newsletter no, I was, telling, I, I was like, That sounds um, super
0: interesting. I wonder if people would you know, like to have access to it. I'm sure lots of people would like to have access to it, but I'm not going to try to give them a URL to do it.
1: <laughs> so, um, and, and uh, a part of the, the issue is that I think generally um, we're very encouraged to be publicly involved. So I've been uh, working, there have been a number of people who have been working on data science COVID insights with the city and, and other entities externally. Um, there is, of course, the concern, a lot of the data analysis reveals in, in much detail what data sources mm-hmm, it is that this was derived course. from. And I think that's where typically then... Uh, We are feeling a little less comfortable sharing all that.
0: I understand; that makes perfect sense. All right, so let's um, let's try to move a little bit away from uh, divulging proprietary information, and um, uh, I'll ask this question about the kinds of skills uh, and tools um, that uh, you use. So, you know, what kinds? You know, you've mentioned now; you've discussed what your kind of work is. So, you describe it as what you call the front end um, R and D. So, it isn't like front end development it isn't like building a user interface but it's the um where in your world uh the back end is executing the trades i suppose the front end is coming up with ideas for models that trades get executed on um so what kinds of tools do you use to 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 do that
1: so first of there's a little bit of front ending going on so we do have a number of of dashboards especially for things like these covid insights um also a lot of focus on election so we have done a little bit but that has not been my my core focus right, right, right. um i mean you should not at all be surprised to find the kind of typical stack of uh data science this uh, bread and butter obviously a lot of work happens in Jupyter uh, notebooks um hmm. At this point, Python has become uh, a very prevalent uh, modeling environment. There are still, um, I find it fascinating, um, some of the tooling is kind of straddling the place between specifically built for the needs of the company vis-a-vis then having the um, kind of open source tools and kind of the flux in between. And depending on when you're where you're ending up, as, as you get to the more to Sigma specific things, then the support you need and what kind of help on, on that side is kind of very specific. Uh, but in broad terms, in terms uh, of tooling, we are um, utilizing cloud for uh, a number of data storage and even uh, processing. Um, as I said, Python is uh, the primary use case, um, or primary language. Um, you have a lot of spark going on for some of the more intensive scaling challenges that people deal with. Um, there is a, I think that's an open source tool um, called IBIS, which is used to um, basically interface with any kind of cloud uh, storage system. So it automatically generates SQL queries from a more kind of programming language, that many of the uh, coders feel more comfortable expressing their data manipulation uh, in that format and then have it auto generate this signal yeah, cool. that then. you can run. So, um, yeah, I think that's, that's broadly speaking where most of, I would say, 95% of what I call front end. Now, truth is, we have folks that write uh, code in R. Um, you know, If you're really good at R, if you want to do your research in R, Go for it. so there is it's not very prescriptive on the um, ideation side. I think once you get more into the productionalizing it and making sure this runs then on the schedule and so on, I think there's a lot more consistency and requirement. But on the r and d side, I and I've written the occasional Perl script, not that that's <laughs> something that I would recommend anybody to yeah. do, but um, okay uh,
0: uh, never mind. And uh, one thing that if I recall correctly, I mean, I don't know, maybe I don't know if people would find this interesting or not. But um, most organizations, they're a Windows organization, or if you're a tech startup, you'll often be a a Mac-focused kind of organization. But if I recall correctly, everybody's working on Ubuntu. Is that right? Am I misremembering that? I thought for some reason.
1: So I don't... Let me tell you what I (laughs) work on. When I joined... Then you can draw conclusions from there. Um, when I joined uh, to Sigma, we were just in the process of um, moving, uh, allowing people to work on laptops. Ah. And that was from a security perspective, uh, a significant concerns because so now you're moving with this. You could be sitting in a coffee shop. So, so the um, concerns of security around um, the potential of having proprietary, uh, confidential information. And by the way, this is not just because we want to be secretive. I mean, there's a lot of um, regulation in, uh, around what we should and shouldn't be doing, right? So um, it, it serves more than just a uh, let's kind of contain our ideas. Um, and so at that point, we now started to um, being able to work on uh, Windows-based uh, ah, machines, laptops that we could
0: move I see.
1: So the venture team is on MacBooks, um, but most of Two Sigma um, embraced uh, laptops, and the timing was really excellent because by the time remote work became a necessity, pretty much everybody had a laptop.
0: Right. Um
1: Otherwise, people had at home maybe a, a workstation that mirrored the workstation they had. They were also Windows-based, by the way. So you would still log into a Windows system. The actual compute, a lot of that happens on cloud machines that you log into remotely, right. and whether you now just go in, um, kind of behind and open up a, a notebook on on your, or whether you actually go in there with a full X terminal kind of you a full view, um, I think that's a matter of taste. Um, so yes, most of the compute is clearly on Linux, and I have no idea if it's Ubuntu, <laughs> it but um, I don't
0: know why I had to, I had this. It's obviously a mismemory of. Everybody working on Ubuntu.
1: So, but as far as I'm concerned, the, the machine that I'm carrying around physically in my yeah. hand, that's, that's, that's the Windows. Well,
0: yeah, that's so it awesome. ended up being an interesting story, but um, I, I hope you won't mind me saying that using Windows is a bit less interesting of a choice uh, for me to be asking a question about.
1: Well.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's great. So, um you know, now we've talked about what uh, you know you do on a day-to-day basis at Two Sigma. Uh, you know, in a, in, a, in a broad way, the the way that that you approach financial markets. Um, we've talked about the tools that you use. So, when you're looking to hire, uh, you know, Two Sigma is hiring the most talented people on the planet. What do you look for in terms of hard skills or soft skills?
1: So I want to um, give you kind of a broader sense. I think there is two sigma hiring at large, and then there is the um, more specific need that I feel uh, I have for my team. And there's a little bit of a difference. Um, There's the constant balance between good financial understanding and being able to have like hypotheses about economic uh, uh, factors and drivers. Um, And on the other side is diversity of thought that um, when you do get to a whiteboard, um, you really have somebody who can challenge you and can bring very different kind of orthogonal thoughts. If we're all thinking the same thing, then um, that signal really doesn't give you any any way of, of managing risk or anything. So there is very strong emphasis in getting diversity of thought and hypotheses. And we're measuring um, how kind of different your ideas are once we get to a point where we're having the signals. So in, in that search, there's this balance between how much background and what kind of background uh, do you do you require in these different areas? One thing for sure, we are a technology company. So. Um, I think once you are on the modeling side, you have to be able to to code on some level and be able to do data analysis. So um, in the more executive, like if we're looking for advisors on certain roles, that's not like once you're reaching a certain level, but let's talk about normal hiring in terms of skill set. Compute is definitely necessary. Um, And uh, then in terms of background, um, we have... I personally have really tried to find the non-usual suspects. So people with background in library science or your pure econ or um, I'm, I mean, Drew himself came from social sciences. So um, I personally have found kind of that mixture to be really interesting and make for great conversations and, and great innovation. Um, At at the current moment, I feel that I've gone so far out of my way with that strategy (laughs) that I probably should hire somebody who knows more about finance than I do. (laughs) So in terms of really then connecting your hypothesis to how it would affect markets, um, that piece, so it's really you're looking for these missing building blocks. And so when you are talking to the HR team, I'm, I'm trying to describe to them as clearly as what I'm looking for. And then often we're discussing, well, where do you think these kind of people are working right now? Um and what kind of background should we be looking for? So it's actually a very um closely involved um relationship that we have with our HR teams as we're describing who we want. And then even, yeah, I really want these type of people on my lineup to talk to that person because actually I can get help if if the Python programming isn't really up to par yet fully. I can get somebody to mentor that we can that's something we can absorb right now, but we're really looking for that skill to complete our team's skill set ultimately right. so this has been um it's not like cookie cutter you go out there and then they're coming in there there is a, a good amount of involvement and, and thoughtfulness in terms of what skills would complement the team that we have
0: nice that's a that's a great answer um as all of your answers have been. Um, and so kind of following on from that, either at Two Sigma or even just in the broader data science or machine learning market, where do you think the field is going? Like what kinds of skills should people be getting now or in the years to come to be as hireable as possible? You know, yeah, it could be at a financial services firm, at a hedge fund, or, or even just more generally.
1: Um, I, I love... That you asked a question, and I've been struggling uh, uh, with a good answer to that question um, as well. Because I, as you know, um, I am currently teaching as an adjunct at NYU in the uh, part-time MBA program, and you are always one of the absolute favorites when it comes to. Oh Oh, yeah, they love you. Yeah,
0: I have the honor of doing a guest lecture in Claudia's (laughs) course at NYU Stern, and. Yeah, it's always it's so much fun to give. I miss being able to do it in person, and I can't wait to be able to do that again. Because you, I, re, you know, there's uh, from the last time that I came and did it in person um, at NYU, um, there's half a dozen people who I still see popping up regularly on LinkedIn, and it's so easy to remember. Oh yeah, that was a person I met that night. Um, yeah. And so, well, thank you very much for saying that. Um, but yeah,
1: so. no, um, absolutely. So the moment it's back in person, you'll be back in person. <laughs> Great. Um, and so what's interesting about that gang is they are not what you would understand to be a regular data scientist. Uh, they are in an MBA program and they are really looking to understand more on the conceptual level um, kind of what are the opportunities, where is this technology really valuable, uh, where, what are the fundamental limitations. So it's slightly different than the question you ask, um, but one of the things I have um, found um to be difficult is um to assert a certain level of um real data intuition and and let me let me try to quantify this somewhere there is um i think there was recently a blog i'm happy to share that that i found kind of pretty spot on there's the ability to look at an analysis or a data set and say you know what it just doesn't quite smell right the performance is too good in some ways, or there are certain ways that algorithms behave, like the relationship between the performance of the logistic regression and the tree just doesn't make sense. They shouldn't be that different, or they shouldn't be that similar. So there is, on the machine learning side, but also just on the sheer data analysis, um, a, a level of skepticism that you look at data and say, well, this might be data, but it's probably very far from the truth, and that that curiosity to understand what might be going on. And I've been talking to uh, one of my team members and I I try to express that, it comes from a friend of mine. Before you do any analysis, I want you to have an expectation as to what to find.
0: Mm. Classic classic scientist behavior that scientists, I think, seldom actually have.
1: First, think about your problem. Think about for any answer, that you're looking for first what you expect it to be. And then if it's not that, you have to figure out why. And there are two possibilities. Either you learn something about the world that you didn't know and you are better off. Or you figure out that something is wrong with your analysis or the data. So it becomes both a, uh, an opportunity to grow and a form of a guard rail for analysis. Um, and I have struggled even with my, my own teaching efforts. Kind of how do I convey that? Um, how, how do I get people into the habit of, of doing that? Um, and this is something where I think on an educational side, as as much as I love the ability to take um, online courses and to learn a lot about the methods and the math and all of that kind of exciting stuff, when it comes to um, thinking deeply about uh, What your data should be, that is a data set that it's not a benchmark data set where the only goal is to beat the current or get within 5% of the current Mm -hmm. performance. And then being able to say, look, this is really not likely to be right. And the data set, you often end up having to significantly refactor it, throw half of it away. Um, so, So that process in terms of understanding data, as well as on the early piece, It's very easy. Oh, I just need to build a model to predict default. Well, maybe, but do we really need to look all of them or are some of these default cases really not appropriate? Um, I recently did a project um, in the medical space on kind of a side uh, effort uh, where we're looking at uh, um, hospital readmissions and I just don't understand enough about medicine and it's not just about building a model that predicts whether the person shows up again in hospitals. You need to actually understand how the process works and why people go to rehab. And if they go to rehab, it's coded as a hospital, but it doesn't mean that they got readmitted. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of simple stuff of that sort that, um, where communication skills and the ability to reconnect the fun modeling piece back to what are we trying to achieve here? Um, I have found that part to be the hardest to evaluate in candidates and also the hardest for candidates to do well on. We find a lot of candidates Mm -hmm. that get screened and that get 100% on the coding test, but they seem to be entirely uncomfortable with questioning real-life data sets that are not kind of prepared and of course just telling somebody oh you need 10 years of experience that is not a fair answer i think the real question is how do we help educating those kind of skills in the process and how do we build a better sense of evaluating them
0: that's a beautiful answer and it brought me it brings me to several other questions and comments about you and your career so First of all, I think that that is an amazing answer to the question, what do data scientists need to be doing and looking for in the future? Because this is absolutely something that's not going to go away. It's not like there's going to be some software library, some Python library that comes out that lets you know that these data are reliable and everything's fine. Like it's always going to be a problem. Um, And so I think that that is a focus of your course at NYU. Um, I think that's something that you talk about a lot is where things can go wrong. And so first I want to make the comment that if you ever have the opportunity to see Claudia give a lecture, they are always exceptional. And a lot of them hinge around this idea of data not being as you expected. Um, I remember a talk from a couple of years ago that you gave called All of the Data but Still Not Enough. And uh, that was a great one. She's she um, Claudia gives lectures kind of like the way Malcolm Gladwell uh, writes books where she sets you up thinking where you think you know what's going on and you're understanding the problem and you're so smart. And then she, the next slide comes up and you realize that, you know, everything is the opposite of what it appeared. uh, And you'd been lulled into a false sense of security around your own intellect. Um, So there's a recommendation for you. Um, But then second, this also, leads me to a question. So you have a very storied career um, as a data science competition winner. You are <laughs> uh, like, I, I, I mean, you could, you could describe better than me, but you've... you've okay. okay. Please, go ahead. Tell, so, so tell us about your history with data science competitions, and then maybe you have a tip or two, I suspect they're going to be related to data quality, um, around how to win competitions.
1: So, a story about my um, competitive experience in data science. Um, I think the first time um, I stumbled over uh, competitions was long before this was kind of broadly um, publicized effort. Um, you may know of a community called uh, KDD. Uh, it's an annual mm-hmm. conference. Um, knowledge discovery and data mining was the original term. I think it's 25 years ago was the first workshop that then became its own um, ACM uh, conference. And um, I think it was in maybe 98, at some point, um, for the first time, somebody posed a competition in that context um, where the pretty much rules of the game as we know it today were set up. There's a training set that everybody gets. There's a test set where the target variable is missing. Everybody goes off, does their thing. You can write it down on a piece of paper with a pencil if you want and come to a solution or you can actually use deep learning. I don't care. Tooling is whatever you are most comfortable with. Um, At the end of the day, you submit your answer. It's very clear how you're going to be measured. Um, And then a winner is pronounced. Um, I think this idea actually goes back. There was a Santa Fe time series uh, uh, prediction competition where one of the tasks was uh, to finish an unfinished uh, piece of music uh, using computers. So, if you're interested, uh, that was run by uh, Neil Gershenfeld and Andreas Weigand. Uh-huh. But so, in this way, um, there have been these competitions long before Kaggle uh, was as uh, well, it even existed. Um, and so, KDD has been running this um, ever since um, the late 90s. And so um, at IBM, I got involved uh, in uh, the years 2007 through nine, um, being a participant. And uh, our team happened to win those three um, uh, years in I a like row. That. Uh, happened which
0: to. <laughs> <laughs> There's some luck uh, involved. Yeah, awesome.
1: um, but um, so at the time, I think one was about Netflix data. Um, you probably know the Netflix price. So it was the same data set, but um, on a different task. There was one in uh, in the uh, medical space on breast cancer detection. And there was a third one. Um, I think it was also in the, um, that was in the uh, telecommunication space where you predict churn. sure. The piece that you are alluding to, and that's kind of the story I like to tell about this, I won pretty much every single one of them not by having the best algorithm or the fanciest algorithm. Um, but pretty much every single time I found something that was wrong in the data that ultimately you could exploit in order to get a better predictive performance. Mm. And why that is a little bit mischievous um, here, um, I think it's an exceptionally good learning experience. Obviously, in the real world, you're not interested in coming up with fake performance on a model that's supposed to predict breast cancer. But the ability to spot that this data set has a certain underlying structure where, in the end, the patient ID is predictive. Mm -hmm. And that goes back to the expectations. It should not be. If you come to me and you tell me that, Something that shouldn't be predictive is. I think that's the starting point for a great journey into the guts of a data set. Uh, And you might find that ultimately my assessment in that data set would be, it is not viable to build a model that should ever be used, period. Um, And you can listen to that story and why that happened the way it did. Um, The same was true um, for the other examples where uh, we were able to take advantage of statistical properties of the data set being uh, disclosed by the way the test that was sampled. Mm. Now in practice, you shouldn't be doing this, but you learn a lot about thinking about the data generating process. In the last case, um, it became quite obvious that somebody had liberally replaced missing values with, the, with zeros. Uh which is one thing that I tell everybody to not ever do. Um, And it turns out that the missingness was highly predictive, so you had to basically backwards engineer what had been done to the data set and the preprocessing to reestablish missingness, and then you got a very uh, well-performing model in the process. Um, When you win this thing three times in a row, there's really nowhere to go. (laughs) Um, So I retired and had instead then started to run uh, data competitions uh, myself. So um, I knew the early founders of, of Kaggle, um, and I, I became uh, involved in running the KDD Cup and running a couple of other competitions um, at InForms, and still a couple of uh, data hackathons um, afterwards. I So to your question, how do you win um, competitions? You'd better have a lot of time at your hands. So... Um, I'm very glad that I'm no longer competing uh, because winning a cargo competition in today's day and age with that level of kind of quality participants is hard. I don't think I would have a shot to get anywhere near. Secondly, um, I think people have learned a lot about how to better clean up data sets. I think we, we have kind of a, a real process now in terms of uh, doing much more diligence in the data sets that are being published there. Um, but in the early Kaggle competitions, you can go back and look the discussion forums. And I talked to some of the master uh, uh, um, participants there. You still had exactly the same problem, that almost every data set had some form of what we call leakage, meaning there is something that is sorted that shouldn't be. And because it's sorted, you can find out where the holes are. These must be the pieces of the data that were pulled out for the test set. So things of that sort were extremely pervasive. And we, again, might talk about, well, is this really data science? Is that what you should be spending your time on? Well, I hate to break it to you. That's every single data set I've ever touched in industry. And if you can't find these things, then your models are only as bad as whatever went wrong to your data set in the first place. And so developing that skill set maybe in an environment where you can read up what other people have found and understand better how to even think about these processes. Um, So going back through all cargo competitions and just scouring for what are these insights about data that help you become a better data scientist and develop a process and an intuition for what to do with new data sets. I think that's really, really valuable. And as you say, um, as I said, I'm not sure I can compete today, part of it, because I'm not as nearly as well-versed in some of the really exciting new technologies around deep learning. I'm kind of old-style uh, a modeler, um, so I do not want to reduce the relevance of the algorithms that have come an incredibly long way uh, since I left that playing field. Um, so you have to be a good machine learning practitioner. It's just the data piece that you can still probably gain a lot of uh,
0: skills. Nice. That was a beautiful answer. So informative. Thank you. Um, did you know that I once won a data science competition that you created the questions for, um, which one was it that? was in San Sebastian, the ICOM global oh, summit. Of course. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and, um, I mean, so that, that's the opposite of what you're describing where on Kaggle you're competing against tens of thousands of people. I was competing against, well, so I was on a team, first of all, and I was competing against three other teams. Um, So it wasn't a huge field. We won by the extremely narrow margin. And I must admit that, so on my team of four people, I was not the reason why we won, (laughs) for sure. In fact, I specifically, um, I remember we were in this beautiful hotel in San Sebastian. There was a a professional, um, oh, what's the name of the professional football soccer team there?
1: now you're definitely getting into no. a no-interest zone. Well, they we...
0: were, they, Sorry, their their head coach uh, was living in the hotel, um, and I I would wake up very late <laughs> and miss the beginning of the conference, and so it would just be me and him uh, in the uh, you know having having breakfast in the morning. He used to coach Manchester United. So- anyway, I'm getting. So
1: San Sebastian was the icon that I didn't go to. You were there, Brian, Brian D'Alessandro and I were running the competition, but I was not uh actually in A- exactly. San Sebastian. Exactly. You
0: weren't there, but your your competition was. So Brian was yeah. Yeah, you'd come up with the data set and the question. Um and anyway, I I went to bed the night before the results were due. Um, like we were being tested in the morning. So we were there for several days as this hackathon team, and so we'd go off and we'd work on this problem for, it was maybe 48 hours, a twenty, a 24 hour hackathon. Yeah. Um, but the night before results were due, <laughs> I went to bed before anyone else on the team. And when I woke up in the morning, <laughs> they had a much better model score. Um, they'd kind of stayed up all night working on it while I slept. And then because they were also exhausted, after we won, I had the privilege of being the person that presented on our findings and our winning results. <laughs>
1: Uh, well, you make for a very good speaker. So since I think that competition required also presentation skills, uh, I think that was an optimal choice.
0: And this is why I'm in data science management these days. <laughs> uh, I, get to, I get to talk about other people's hard work. Um, so yeah, and you talked about KDD. I think also something that might be of interest to listeners is um, there's a very popular uh, newsletter or website, the KDD Nuggets, I think it is.
1: Katie Nuggets, yes, by Shapiro. Yeah. Um, I think it's really, it has a little bit of that blend of the old style kind of academic focus. It's a little less industrial um, and it has a lot of structure around academic events. Um, uh, I found it to be a really interesting source of uh, some of the um, less flashy updates on technology. And um, yeah, I, encourage everybody to check it out.
0: Nice. Um, So another great practical tip for our data scientists out there. Well, um, so I've now let you talk about everything about today and the future, but I haven't let you talk about your past at all. So maybe now would be a good time to kind of let the audience know how you've ended up where you are today. I mean, I can kind of, with With the level of success that you've had in your career at anything that you've done, um, it's interesting to me that now you have made the choice to work in finance, which is just in the last uh, two years that that's come about. Mm -hmm. And so um, I guess, you know, give us a little bit on your background, but specifically kind of answering the question given that you could probably work anywhere you wanted. Or you'd certainly have a very good shot at working anywhere you wanted. Um, you know, why work in finance? Why work at Two Sigma?
1: I think it's an excellent it's an excellent question, and I have pondered um, every time a student asks me for career advice, um, and I, I try to reflect a little bit of how how I got to where uh, I, I got to. And I have concluded that. The secret to my success is to find good bosses to work for. There is a certain theme that I personally never had a very strong sense. Oh yes, well, okay. At some point, I wanted to be a veterinarian, but that's a long time ago. But I never had very clear goals for my um for my career. I felt like uh, I really enjoy what I'm doing, and I do what I enjoy and the one thing i realize about myself um i really solve other people i really like solving other people's problems i don't like to quote find my own problems to solve necessarily and so i always felt strongly that having a um a person to work for who i deeply respect and who i rely on for quote Making judgment calls, at least initially in my career, about uh, this being a worthwhile problem, uh, and then me getting to think about it and learn something new. And so, my career um, starting out with a great advisor, Foster Provost, who you know, who wrote the book um, on um, data science for business that I'm still using, um, who left me a lot of freedom to do what I want, um, to go to IBM Research Watson to work for Rick Lawrence, who was a very similar. Personality type, where you stand to gain so much in terms of wisdom and mentorship, both on the technical, but also in understanding how organizations work and what kind of projects are successful and what ultimately matters. To then uh, work at a, um, a startup, not because I really wanted to get the startup taste, but because I felt a, a very similar sense of mentorship into now more of the venture world and how that piece really. Uh, came together under Tom Phillips. So it's really weird, but I feel like I've picked the people I wanted to work for much more so than I pick what to work on specifically. And something very similar happened as I started to talk to to Sigma. Um, I met Alfred uh, Spector again, who I knew from the IBM days where he was briefly head of research there and had become, after being at Google, he went to Two Sigma as their um, uh, CTO. Um, and um, I always had a very similar uh, impression of the ability to learn a lot from somebody who has kind of made the journey that they made. And the other person I met there was Ali um, Milan Mush, who I'm now reporting to, um, who has uh, 15 years of experience and, and a real depth of thought and excitement about why we're doing what we're doing. And that's really what I have felt if you get to work with people like those, um you learn a lot, you get the opportunity to make a career for yourself. And that's the piece of mentorship. When people ask about PhDs, don't pick a topic. Pick an advisor. Pick an advisor who cares about you, about your growth, and not necessarily just kind of the next step in their kind of publication phase. I think the same is true. I've interviewed at a number of companies. I've been offered great positions as head of AI here, there, or other ways. And the one decision, the one factor that always drove my decision, would I like to work for that person or with that person? And if the answer is no, then that was the answer. So it might be a very kind of personal attitude. I had the benefit of being able to choose what to work for at that point, you can make maybe those choices. So it's a, um, a bonus that may not work for everybody. Uh, but that has been my experience. So, and that's how I found my way into finance. There are great problems to work on. There's a lot of interesting stuff to do. Um, and there are great peop- uh, people to
0: work for. And, work and lots of data. And lots of data. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, And I I couldn't agree more with that advice. I don't know if we've talked about this before, but um, I imagine we haven't. But that uh, that is the same thing I've done in my career is I have, same thing, my PhD topic. I didn't, you know, I wasn't particularly interested on that PhD topic before, but I met the supervisor and I was like, wow, I would love to work with that guy. What's he doing? And then the same yeah. kind of thing has happened since my PhD. I meet people that I'm like, wow, you are interesting. And I love the problems you're solving. I really admire your character. And um, I don't really care what you're working on, but I'll work on it alongside you. <laughs> um, amazing. So uh, this has been such valuable advice. Thank you so much. I just have uh, one last a uh, question to ask you, which is, what are you reading right now, or what do you recommend uh, for listeners to read themselves?
1: So I have been making a little bit of a detour. I've come back to the to the classics. So let me tell you where the story starts. Um, a good friend of mine, um, Sinan Aral, uh, who uh, works at uh, MIT and has published uh, extensively, but specifically a book on the hype machine that is focused on how the algorithms that we're using machine learning um, interface with the scale of social media. And there's a lot of depth we could go into there, Mm -hmm. Um, but I absolutely recommend if if people are interested in that. But what it brought me back to is the original thoughts around memes. And um, I I went to kind of find the source and um, I had read Richard Dawkins' Selfish uh, Gene maybe 30 years ago. And I found it absolutely, it totally changed the way I thought about a lot of kind of these processes. And in the very last chapter of a book that was published in the last century, uh, he poses that memes and ideas have a very similar evolutionary patterns as individuals and living beings, and that the um, evolution and how they gain ground in the minds of folks um, is really well understood as you think about them as living organisms. Um, and that really came back to life in, in the current discussion we have about the, the hype machine. So um, I would absolutely recommend everybody kind of go back and pick up that, that classic from Richard Dawkins and the interconnectivity of how things work that is similar to what happens in biology to what we are now desperately trying to understand in terms of these pieces of information that are recommended by algorithms, and then get shared by our participation in that system, and how it evolves and how it shapes our understanding of the world.
0: Wonderful. Yes, and such a classic, um, as I mentioned before the show, it's a book that I uh, haven't read, but I'm aware of a lot of the philosophy in it, or some of the philosophy in it, and I end up thinking about memes and meme transmission and evolution, um, as a part of my daily life, I think. So definitely a book I should read and I'm sure our listeners would gain a lot from tackling it as well. All right. So, um, that's it. Thank you so much, Claudia. Um, how should our listeners, uh, contact you or follow you or find you? Do you use social media?
1: Oh, uh, I'm not good with social media, so um, you can follow me. Just don't expect much to happen. Uh, on um, how can you reach me? Absolutely, connect to me on LinkedIn. Um, write a little something because I get too many requests from people I don't know, and that that gives me a sense. Like, just tell me where you come across um, uh, me, and then exactly. I'd be absolutely happy to respond. Um, the truth is, I'm very easy to find. I think with about 20 seconds of Google, you have both my personal email and my phone number. Um, stick to the email, but feel free to to use that. Um, uh, so yeah, I'm I'm welcoming people to reach out to me um, uh, via email as well. Um, uh, my primary kind of social environment is LinkedIn. I'm not using it very uh, liberally, but um, that has been uh, always the best way to catch up
0: with me. Nice. Yeah, that has been the the trend uh for me as well as uh anybody that I've had as a guest on a podcast LinkedIn for data scientists seems to be the platform of choice. Um wonderful. Well, thank you so much Claudia and I do highly recommend again if you ever have the chance to see Claudia speak, go do it. You will not regret it. She is one of the best on the planet. Um Thank you so Thank much, you. and I hopefully have you again on the program soon.
1: Well, we should switch roles next time, and I will ask you to go into depth what you do. I think you put this. You should put this on your podcast. Seriously, has Kirill ever actually had you as a yeah, guest in his podcast? Episode
0: three sixty five. You can check that out. When was that? Um, it was in twenty twenty, uh maybe spring of twenty twenty. Okay. But yeah, so listeners can check out episode 365 if they want to have the experience, well, <laughs> the experience of what it would be like to be to have me be interviewed <laughs> um, by, yeah, by Kirill, the longstanding host well, of the Super Data Science Podcast.
1: Yeah. I feel like we could have just as much fun if I got to interview you and maybe that's something I should be doing at some point.
0: Well, that sounds great. I would always say yes to any invite from you, Claudia. Thank you.
1: Um, All right, so... Thank you again. Great to have me here. I I appreciate that uh, very much so. Um, Great conversation. I will catch up on some of the podcasts that I definitely should be listening to. Uh, It's absolutely fun to see you. You ping up on my LinkedIn's and (laughs) Twitters and what have you with all the the great content that you bring out there. So, um, congratulations to all the stuff you do. It has been great to kind of catch up with you and going to follow you from the distance. And next time we can meet in Bryant Park. Let's do that and have a drink.
0: Nice. That sounds great. All right. Thank you so much, Claudia, and catch you again soon. Wow. Claudia is brilliant, isn't she? She has such thoughtful and well-spoken responses to every question. You'd think I provided her with the questions in advance, but she was responding off the cuff and we had no retakes whatsoever. Well, I learned a lot about the leading role data, stats, and machine learning plays in trading algorithms. I also greatly appreciated the emphasis Claudia has on studying data for irregular or unexpected patterns, traits she looks for in the scientists she hires, as well as traits that enabled her to be a three-peat champion in global data science competitions. As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, and URLs to Claudia Perdich's LinkedIn, as well as my own LinkedIn and Twitter profiles at www.superdatascience.com 437. That's superdatascience.com 437. If you enjoyed this episode, kindly leave a review on your favorite podcasting app or on YouTube, where you can enjoy a high-fidelity video version of today's program. It sure is nice to put smiling faces to the laughs. I also encourage you to tag me in a post on LinkedIn or Twitter to let me know your thoughts on this episode. I'd love to respond to your thoughts in public. All right, it's been so much fun. Thank you for listening. Looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science Podcast with you very soon.